microfinance loans are fairly well provided across many of the countries that we operate in, but people that need slightly larger loans, and let's say $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 to start a small business or grow a business, it's very, very hard to access finance at that level. And so this is the group that we call the missing middle. And we've set up an impact investment fund specifically to tackle the issue of access to finance for that missing middle group. Welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. Today we're recording what we think is quite a special episode because it touches on a topic that's near and dear to our mission as an organisation, which is to have a positive impact on people and planet. And in that vein, we're going to be speaking with Shane Nichols. Shane is CEO at Good Return, a social purpose organisation which is dedicated to breaking down barriers to finance and enabling women um, and those who are marginalised in our region to build financial security. Shane is a wealth of knowledge. Um, He has a bachelor's degree in behavioural science and social science. He teaches at Macquarie University, which you'll hear a little bit about in the episode of the Global Leadership Programme. He serves as a non-executive director at uh, Palermo Projects and the Australian Council for International Development and is an advisory committee member on the Cross-Sector Partnership Initiative. So a highly credentialed and qualified individual. In this episode, we dive into the world of impact investing, microfinance, and full disclosure as well, Leaders for Good is proud and excited to be part of Good Returns Impact Investment Fund. And through our conversations with Shane um, in, in getting started with that and, and Kerry's history with the uh, Good Return organization, which you'll hear about in the episode, it became a, a bit of a no-brainer to have an on-mic conversation with Shane. So without further ado, we bring you this conversation with Shane Nichols. Welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to have with us Shane Nichols, who amongst many other things is the CEO of Good Return and someone who I am eternally grateful to because Shane was part of me working with Good Return in Cambodia. And that was really where the idea for Leaders for Good first came from and was a catalyst to Phil and I beginning this journey in our path to purpose and doing more good in the world. So a huge thank you, Shane, and everyone at Good Return. And we'd love to start today's conversation by asking a bit more about you. How did you find yourself in the position you're in today and doing the work that you do? Thanks, Kerry. Um, Just over 20 years ago, I was living and working in China. I was working as a journalist and editor and I wanted to do some travel around the west of the country. And I, so I went on a, a motorbike adventure. And while I was on that trip, I picked up a hitchhiker. He was a young Chinese man who'd been working on a road construction site. And I took him back to his home village. And when we got there, he invited me in for a cup of tea. And, you know, I was thirsty and I thought that would be lovely. So I went into his his dwelling, which was a one-room hut. Um, As soon as I sort of saw it and entered it, I realised they were obviously a very poor family. His grandmother was lying on the floor on a rug. It was an earthen floor. Um, They had barely any provisions. And in the centre of the hut were some coals from a previous fire. And inside in the coals was a potato. And he he stoked up the coals to, to heat up some water for this cup of tea. 
And and then he, as the, when the potato warmed up, he sort of offered it to me and said, you know, please have something to eat. And of course I said, no, thank you, I'm fine. And this went back and forth. He kept offering it to me multiple times. And in the end, it, it felt a bit rude to not eat it. And so I, you know, I ate this potato conscious that they didn't have a lot of food or, or, or provisions in their, in their house. And so when it came time to leave, I was sort of wondering, oh, what should I do? Should I give him some money? But that felt really awkward. We were just two, two guys that just met on the road. Um, and so I left there feeling like I wanted to do something to help, but feeling a bit inadequate. And a couple of weeks later, by coincidence, I met someone who was working for a microfinance program and I had had no, I'd never heard of microfinance. I'd had no previous experience of international development work, but it sounded interesting. So I went along uh, um, to visit their program. I met the founder of their organization and I was immediately taken by it. So I went back, enrolled in a master's degree in international development. I studied microfinance and was fortunate to pick up a job at the Australian embassy in China working on their rural development and microfinance programs. And that really got me started in the sector. And uh, for the next few years, I worked in China and Mongolia on a range of different rural development programs before returning to Australia and joining Good Return. That's quite the journey, Shane. Um, and and all from all from one simple interaction with somebody on the on the side of the road um, came came all this. That's uh, that, that's fascinating. Um, what was it? What was it about the uh, about the interaction? Obviously, the the desire to 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 do something and the desire to give back and and the uh, I guess the the recognition of the the inequity there. But um, I'm just wondering, what was it? Was there anything else that really made that? super motivating for you what was the you know what was the, the the driver there i think it was a combination of it was only a few years later that i actually pieced back the sequence of mm. events um right. certainly meeting uh, visiting the microfinance institution was life-changing um but it was only a few years later that i really sequenced it back to that interaction with that young man it was still it's still very vivid in my mind um and i'd previously traveled in africa i'd seen poverty so it wasn't certainly wasn't the first time but um, I, perhaps it was just the feeling that he was only a few years younger than me. It could have been me. Um, and, you know, why, why don't they have the kinds of opportunities that everyone else gets? Mm. And that was really what drove it. I just just you you brought back a few memories from from some of my travels as well in in various parts of the world and and I one one commonality and and from your story you experienced it there you know a, a family that clearly didn't have much but was insistent that you eat and and they share in and you share in what what they had I had that I had a similar experience in you know many many different countries in many many different scenarios and I think that generosity of spirit and and wanting to reciprocate in the most meaningful way we can I think um certainly just just kind of popped out for me while you were while you were telling that story this might seem like a bit of a tangent but I think it might lead us to some in interesting places when we caught up before uh before the mics went uh, the mics went live you were talking about the global leadership program that you're involved with at Macquarie Uni um could you unpack what that looks like why it's so important and 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 maybe that how that links into some of the some of the things you're thinking about and doing at the moment yeah, it's a great initiative of Macquarie Uni. It's open to undergraduate and postgraduate students across all the faculties. So you get a really wide mix of people in there. 
And it really aims to help them become multifaceted global citizens and, and future leaders. So the, through the program, they learn about a wide range of global issues with the expectation that in their future roles, they may have an opportunity to help address some of the big picture challenges that we face as a world. Yeah, it sounds like such an interesting program. And the reason I guess we wanted to start there is because this podcast and us as individuals are really passionate about the power of leaders and organisations to make change and drive some of this inequity that, that is sort of prevalent across the world. So love to dig into that a little bit more and understand how as part of that program you help leaders start to think about this. What's your starting point? So I run a two and a half hour think tank session, which sounds like a long time, but it actually, the time goes really quick. Um, and I start by introducing the sustainable development goals and explaining that everyone has a role to play in achieving those. And so the students come together, they work in groups and they select a company and they consider how that company might be able to contribute to the sustainable development goals. And that's really setting them up for thinking about their future careers and, and what role they might get to play, regardless of you know, what field they go into or what organisation they're with. <clears throat> and then we hone in on SDG1, which is no poverty. That's the one that you know, my organisation works in. And I talk about global poverty trends. Um, they're always super surprised to, to discover that poverty rates have halved globally in the last 30 years. And 30 years ago, roughly one in three people were living below the international poverty line of $1.90 a day. And these days it's under one in 10 people. So we've had phenomenal progress, but COVID's certainly set us back a little bit. And we also know that that last 10% is the hardest to reach. And so it really does require a concerted effort. And after that framing around the SDGs, then I talk about microfinance as a strategy to achieve some of the sustainable development goals and some of the experiences we've had there. And that leads into a discussion around impact investing and the fact that governments and other grant makers can't possibly fund the achievement of the SDGs. And we really need to move private capital towards doing good. I guess that leads us into a couple of things there. Um, the sustainable development goals, a lot of audience would have would have heard about them, but maybe there's some people who, who are hearing that term for the first time. So I'm just wondering if you could give us the uh, give us the canned version of, of what the SDGs are and, and why people should be thinking about them and caring about them. So the SDGs are a set of global goals that were established back in 2015. Uh, it was convened by the United Nations and we had 193 member states of the United Nations sign on to the Sustainable Development Goals. So it really has global buy-in. And these 17 goals cover all facets of sustainable and ethical living. Um, goal number one is about no poverty. There are other goals of, that are about food and addressing malnutrition, um, there's environmental sustainability, there's women's economic empowerment, there's partnerships for the goals, a whole wide range of things. And unlike perhaps previous efforts at poverty reduction, there was a really big rallying call around the SDGs to say, this isn't just the job of governments and non-profit organisations, this is the job of everybody. And what's been really heartening is that a lot of companies have got on board with the SDGs and you'll often see in their annual reports how they're, how they're contributing in their own way and through their own products and services and activities towards the achievement of those goals. 
Perfect. Thanks, Shane. And you you touched on a couple of things in when you were when you were previous previously talking there about microfinance and impact investing, and I guess that leads on to. Um, you know what? What is good return? Um, how, how are you? How are you working with with those concepts? And 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 what's the what's the organization's mission? What, what what's behind everything you do? So good return was established back in two thousand and three by my good friend Guy Winship. I met Guy when he was setting up the organization, and the organization's really been at the forefront of social finance since that time. Um, we aim to combat inequality and exclusion by working within existing financial systems and partnering with local organisations around Asia and the Pacific. And what we do is we support those partner organisations to provide responsible and inclusive financial services to local entrepreneurs. We have a particular focus on women, but it's not exclusive. We work with a wide range of marginalised and excluded groups, such as people with disability. And the focus is very much on giving them access to finance, but also making sure that they've got the education and the business skills to enable them to participate meaningfully in the economy. And this can have real impacts on their lives, but also that of their families and communities. Shane, could you talk a bit more for us about why financial inclusion is so important and how actually it makes such a difference to those individuals? Sure. Well, I, I guess it's very interesting when you look at poverty statistics that you see there's a very large correlation between people who are living in poverty and people who lack access to banking services. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that you give someone access to a bank account and they move out of poverty. That's certainly not the case. But if you don't have access to a safe place to save your money, then what happens is you store it under the mattress or you invest in pigs and chickens um, and the money quickly disappears. And if you don't have a place to borrow, it's very hard to get ahead um, financially. It's very hard to start a small business, et cetera. And so access to basic financial services, and if you imagine your own life and how you got to where you are, you know, and all your parents, it would have been very hard to have what you have now if you'd never had access to basic banking services. And so microfinance is about providing those services in a way that low-income people can actually access and manage and utilise to benefit their lives. And it's yeah. really a stepping stone out of poverty. And when I was in Cambodia, we heard lots of stories about people that were keeping their money under the mattress and it was getting stolen or flooded or um, there was an example of someone that kept their money in the walls and the rats got into the walls and ate all the money. And when you are living with so little, that money is so important. So not having a safe environment to keep it in is absolutely um, fundamental to be able to start to even think about things like saving. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. So... You mentioned impact investing, and I'm just wondering if you could zero in on that. Obviously, well, not obviously, but impact investing is something that we've partnered with Good Return on, and we believe it's a, a really powerful vehicle for, for having a positive impact in the world. So how is it different from microfinance, and um, why might people want to consider um, thinking about impact investing for, for their businesses or, or as individuals? So impact investing is this concept that you can invest your money in something that produces some sort of environmental or social benefit, and then you get your money back. Now, microfinance was one of the very early forms of impact investing. So you're able to fund a loan, it does some good, and then you get your money back. And at Good Return, we set up Australia's first online microfinance platform back in 2008 to enable people to fund microloans. 
at the end of the loan period, their money would come back to them. And it's still operating today. So that was one of the early forms of impact investing. But nowadays, it's much broader. It operates across a, quite a wide range of sectors and industries. Um, and in our work, we've found that microfinance loans are fairly well provided across many of the countries that we operate in. But people that need slightly larger loans, and let's say $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 to start a small business or grow a business, it's very, very hard to access finance at that level. And so this is the group that we call the missing middle. And we've set up an impact investment fund specifically to tackle the issue of access to finance for that missing middle group. And that's, I guess, where we've been able to partner with you in the area that we're really, really excited about. I'd love it if you could give some examples of some of the organisations that you're looking to help support. And I know there's a, a test case um, that helps bring it to life a bit, because sometimes I think these things can be a bit theoretical, but there's some really great examples of how this is having a positive impact. Yes, our test case was in the Solomon Islands, and this was in the virgin coconut oil sector. So what we do is we look at agricultural value chains that present economic opportunities for women. We think there's growth opportunities, but there's some sort of barriers in terms of them accessing job opportunities and finance. And in the Solomon Islands, we identified that virgin coconut oil was a great opportunity because what was happening was in the villages, people were harvesting coconuts. <clears throat> Someone would come on a boat once a week. They'd take the coconuts down to the shore, sell them to the person on the boat, and that was it. So they'd get a pittance for their work. Um, there was a great organisation called Coconut Pacific, Solomon Islands, who was producing these uh, this machinery that you could use to crush coconuts and extract virgin coconut oil. Now, the plant and equipment and, and various units attached to it is quite big and it costs about 25,000 Australian dollars to set up one of these businesses. Um, and so there were a range of people out in the community in, in the Solomon Islands who had varying degrees of business experience who were capable of running these businesses, but they couldn't get access to finance. And so what we did was we shopped around, we talked to the various banks and we said to them, what if we gave you a guarantee of 50% of any loan losses? So if you incur any loss to this group, we'll cover 50% of your risk and we'll help you to find new clients. So we'll work with Coconut Pacific, this organisation, um, to identify potential business owners and put together a business case so that you've got a new loan application ready to go with a business case attached. So they were quite willing to give that a go. We approached a social investor and raised $50,000 from them. They're called the Cages Foundation. And thank you to them for, for really pioneering this fund for us. And we, we placed that um, as a guarantee with the local lender. And what that enabled was a number of businesses to start up. Um, they were able to access credit. And then by starting this plant in the village, they were able to employ between six and 12 people from the village to operate the plant, and they would be purchasing coconuts from dozens and dozens of families across the village, and thereby adding value and keeping, keeping um, that value in the community. And the $50,000 that was invested, because it was through a guarantee, was able to leverage over $125,000 in loans to these people. So that's, that was the I guess, the experimental case for us. And on the basis of that, we then set out and launched a $1 million impact fund. And thank you to Leaders for Good for being part of that journey with us. 
Thank you. And I'd love to dig into it a little bit more because obviously access to finance is one component of that. And you talk to us about this a lot. And of course, access to finance is important. But the other part is the capacity building. Could you explain mm. a bit about how that works? Sure. So we work on capacity building at two levels. One is the organisational level. So these are our lending institution partners. And there are a range of techniques for uh, lending to low-income groups and also for taking a gender lens on your investments. And so what we'll do is we'll work with a partner organisation, first of all, to do a gender self-assessment. How are their own policies and practices with regards to the roles of different genders within their organisation? And it's a very introspective process. And then you look at their products and services and how they're benefiting or otherwise people of different genders. And that usually... Um, they identify themselves through that process improvements that they can make. And we really try to avoid going in and, and dictating or preaching to them about what they should be doing. The ideas very much come from our partners and they form a working group. Um, and then we support them to maybe it's develop a new loan product that's, that's more accessible to women. And we bring in our financial resources, whether it's through our micro loan program or through our impact investing program, to help them experiment and make that, that new product viable for them. And then the second level at which we do the capacity building is at the village level. So these are with the entrepreneurs themselves. And for the most part, our work in that space involves financial education training. And so that's helping people, first of all, to take control of their own financial lives, their personal financial lives. What we find is that people have you know, often people on low incomes have got, and particularly in agricultural communities, have got money coming in from a variety of sources. They do a bit of wage labour. They've got family members sending remittances. You know, they're growing surplus produce, which they sell at market. Um, and they often don't know which ones are more profitable than others. And they, there's a real tendency to mix personal and business finances. It all just goes in the same bucket. Mm. And so one of the really important principles is being able to keep track of your money. And we've got various tools and now digital tools that help people to just track where their money's coming from and where it's going to. And that helps them on the journey of being more mindful about their money decisions. And that leads into discussions about business investments and, and how they manage their business as well. Yeah, great. And I think what's interesting through, we've been having a lot of conversations about impact investing and certainly, certainly in lower income countries where it's a real a real challenge and they've had scenarios with people giving big loans to companies, but actually they don't have the capacity to be able to implement those in the right way. And then actually people falling further into poverty based on those loans. So the capacity part is really important. One other thing I'd love you to explain and dig into a bit more detail is about the importance of gender in this. So we've talked about the need to apply a gender lens. Why is that so important in the world of poverty? Why, why does that matter? So there's a few reasons for that. One is that poverty is disproportionately experienced by women. So that's sort of the starting point. Secondly, in the microfinance sector, we know that women are much more collaborative um, in terms of microfinance relies on, traditionally relies on group processes. So groups will come together, there'll be peer guarantees, those sorts of things. And we find that men tend to prefer individual loans and women are much better at operating on a group level and mm. supporting each other in those activities. Now, these are obviously generalisations, but sort of been borne out through several decades of experience in microfinance. And thirdly, um, we know that when women control the resources in a household, 
but they're much more likely to go towards beneficial activities, things, food, nutrition, education, medicines, those sorts of things. And so the impacts on poverty are greater when women are in control of financial resources. Of course, those sorts of shifts um, are quite significant in certain cultural contexts and they really take time. And so you have to be very careful about the way that you support women to become more economically empowered and make sure that you bring men along on that journey. And so whereas once microfinance focused exclusively on women in many places, nowadays it tends to include men as well because there's a recognition that men need to go on that journey as well. Yeah, and the complexity of that system. I remember one of the things that really was an eye-opener for me was if, if you don't do this in the right way, if you start empowering women financially, one of the un unintended side effects was that domestic violence was increasing. And that was just a real eye-opener for me about the complexity of the system and having to make sure that we're looking at everything rather than sort of a very narrow focus on how do we give women more access to finance. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, question for me on that: Does does that thinking change, or how does that thinking change when when we move from you? You mentioned a few examples there, um, more more around the microfinance uh, space as we move to impact investment, and we think about larger loans, and we 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 think about setting up or scaling more substantial businesses. Uh, how does that lens on gender change? If it does, are there are there different programs you're thinking about? What's the what's the what's the difference there? I think it, it does change slightly. So the, the women that are in a position to run those slightly larger businesses are often, they're already empowered women. They've often already been successful in their community. And so the intra-household gender dynamics are not necessarily as much of an issue mm -hmm. for those women or in the community. But where those women do face the challenges is the institutional biases that exist. Yeah. So they've, they've got great potential, they've got great skills and confidence but they're just unable to break into the economy because banks and other organisations are just not, you know, they're prejudiced in the way they offer their services. Mm. And these prejudices have been around for such a long time. They're baked into systems and people are not conscious of them. They're very much unconscious biases. And so when we work with an organisation, it's really about helping them to discover their own unconscious biases. And are you doing that at uh, an advocacy and policy level? Are you working with the? Is that work with the financial institutions primarily that you that you're doing? That's right. That work is with financial institutions, and what we do is we often work together with the peak body for the financial institutions in the country that we're in. It could be the peak body for microfinance agencies, or sometimes even the banking association. And we offer training uh, through an online platform in gender awareness, as well as a whole range of different inclusion topics in, in, in finance. Um, and on top of that, we work together with central banks and governments on broad consumer awareness campaigns. So we've got a campaign that's active at the moment in Cambodia. Um, we've got another one starting up in the Solomon Islands soon, both of which are being led by the central bank. And it's great to see a government agency taking the lead on these topics of inclusion uh, within the within the economy. And you talked about impact investing as this sort of spectrum. So you've got the small micro loans that we've talked about and you've got the big loans at the other end of the spectrum. So hundreds of thousands of dollars upwards. And then you mentioned this sort of area of the missing middle about the ten dollars to $50,000 loans for organisations. And it's, it's a really sounds like a relatively new space. And as you said, you've done a trial and we're now um, engaging in the impact fund and a programme to make that come to life. 
what are the key challenges of that? Anytime you're doing something new that hasn't really been done before, there's of course a whole load of challenges. So what are you, what are you, what are the biggest ones that you're facing as part of that journey? I, I, firstly, I guess internally has been developing the team's capacity and skills to engage, you know, at a different level, going beyond the microfinance to move into largest larger size investments. That puts you in contact with different types of institutions, and so you need to develop, you know, the skills to be able to work with them. On the fundraising side, it's been really interesting as well. Uh, it's it's I think we're certainly on a journey in terms of educating the community and in particular, you know, the foundations and the philanthropic community that you don't, so the way that foundations would typically operate is they'll have a big corpus of capital, of money that they've, they've accumulated over time. Um, they'll invest that in the share market or in other inv commercial investments. And then they'll use the interest earnings off that to provide grants to organisations such as us. And what we're doing is going to those organisations saying, look, instead of investing your hundred million dollars or whatever you've got into the share market why don't you invest a at least a portion of that into responsible investments such as an impact investment fund and um, usually they love the concept but once you start the discussion you quickly go you know they bring in their financial advisors they start down the usual due diligence process they're looking for risk adjusted returns comparing it to their commercial activities and they're not very good at factoring in the social or environmental impact that you're offering mm -hmm. and so that tends to get discounted in the decision making um, so i think the sector has got quite a long way to go in terms of an australia's certainly behind europe and the us in terms of the evolution of impact investing but we're definitely starting on that journey and I guess we see that as part of our role is to educate the investor community and the philanthropic community about different ways of doing things and it's it's not to say that grants are no longer needed they absolutely are but there's also a role for the investment of capital to help achieve some of these goals and it was interesting for us in our journey because we were really keen to get involved but couldn't couldn't quite work out how and we found it was really easy to find opportunities for impact investment in australia so australian companies that were social enterprises that were doing good for people on the planet that was really easy but it was much harder to try and support in lower income countries could you explain a bit about why that's the case mm. i think that has to do with the fact that most impact investment funds um, will be funding individual businesses. And so if you imagine that you're funding a business in Indonesia, but you're based in Australia, then you've got to do your due diligence on that business. You probably want to go over there and visit them. Um, all of that work requires fairly significant investment. You could spend $10,000 identifying a deal. And so to justify that cost, you have to make fairly large deals. <clears throat> and so what happens is as a result, your typical impact investment from Australia outside of Australia would be, you know, $500,000, a million dollars or more. And that doesn't meet the needs of those smaller businesses that we're trying to target. And so we're quite fortunate in that we've already got an organisational infrastructure with 60 staff around 10 countries. And so we know the local ecosystems. We've got local staff in each of those. And by partnering with local financial intermediaries, we achieve two things. One, we're able to serve those smaller businesses that are in the missing middle and do that you know, cost effectively. Um, but secondly, we're able to support the local financing ecosystem. So our role is really to end our, our own role. So we, we catalyze them to do lending towards these groups. 
once they get comfort with that, then we will withdraw and we'll go and work with someone else. And that's really our goal as an organisation is to do ourselves out of a job. Great goal. And and besides doing yourself out of a job, I'm curious as to what's next for for, for good return. So, you know, the, the the evolution into impact investing from from microfinancing. So it sounds like it's been a quite a quite a big step for you as a as an organisation. Um, what's what's on the horizon? What are you what are you thinking about next? So we've almost closed our first impact investment fund and it's currently operating in Cambodia and Indonesia. And so immediately this year, we're looking to expand it to Fiji and Nepal. Um, I gave the example earlier of virgin coconut oil as a value chain that we've been working in in Indonesia. We're working in Chile and maize as well. And over the next couple of years, we're looking at exploring other value chains so that we can diversify our portfolio. Um, and create a wider range of opportunities. So we're looking forward to that. So for example, in Chile, in Indonesia, there's opportunities for women, not only in growing and harvesting and grading, but also in packaging, making chili jams, getting them to market. And all of these businesses require financing and training. So that's where we can come in and provide some support. Um, another exciting initiative that we have uh, recently established is a program working in the Kimberley region in Australia, and we're, we're learning as, as, as in partnership with um, our funder, the Menzies Foundation, and a local Indigenous-led organisation called Kimberley Jigas on different ways that we can support Indigenous women entrepreneurs, and we've established a business club called Muganda Makers, which is Tomorrow Makers. And uh, over 100 women have joined that club now and they're providing a range of peer mentoring sort of services um, and we're helping them to access business advisory, access finance, the various things they need to get started in their entrepreneurial journey. So I'm very much looking forward to that growing over the couple of years ahead. There's plenty of work to be done. Sounds like it. Fantastic. Perfect. Well, I think that was a really great summary. You know, it's an area I'm so passionate about and just love getting to talk to you about it. It's sort of finishing off for the conversation. What are your what are your biggest takeaways? What are the key things you'd like our audience to think about um, based on the conversation we've had today? Well, there's a, there's a few sort of calls to action, I suppose. One is to learn about impact investing. If you're not already familiar with it, I can recommend the Global Impact Investing Network, GIIN, as a place to start and, and start learning about it. Um, there's practical things that you can do in your everyday life. You can look at, at your own superannuation or any other investments that you have and look at how they're invested and consider more impactful alternatives. And you can also come and visit the Good Return website and try funding a microloan. There's many women entrepreneurs out there that need a hand up. So thank you. Perfect closing thoughts and some really great tangible things that our audience can, can go away and do. So as always, we'd like to finish with a little bit of getting to know you. And I'd like to start that by asking you, what obsessions do you explore on evenings or weekends? Well, I love the water. I take any opportunity I can to go swimming or sailing. That's probably number one. Uh, a hobby of mine is brewing. I love experimenting with different combinations Amazing. of bar barley, hops and yeast and then enjoying the fruits of my labour. And something that I plan to learn more about and get into is beekeeping. So hopefully one day I'll be harvesting delicious honey. So right. good. 
we're all coming to your place for beer and honey. That sounds like a, that sounds like a good weekend. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what organizations do you admire in the world? Um, is there anyone you'd point to as ex examples of, of businesses or, or not-for-profits that you think are just doing stellar work out there that people should pay attention to? My favorite ones are the local organizations that we partner with around Asia and the Pacific. Um, an example is Crowdy in Indonesia, the group of young Indonesians. They started a fintech to help make finance more inclusive for people who are largely excluded from economic opportunity. Um, they're doing fantastic work and our, our programs with them continue to grow. And we're just so fortunate to be able to work with such inspiring people every day. Amazing. And we'll make sure to include a link to them in the show notes here. Okay, final one for us. Final question. What is the biggest change you've made towards more sustainable living in your own personal life? I'd say the biggest change that I've made in the last few years has been not using a car by default. Um, so I've now got into the habit of riding a bike wherever I can in the course of my daily life. And uh, I'm a lot healthier for it and I sleep really well. Amazing. Easy one for people to, to pick up and do as well. So thank you so much for being on the Leaders for Good podcast. It's been amazing having you. Hopefully we've given you all some inspiration on some things you can do to make a bigger impact. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, the best way to support us and spread the message is by telling a friend or a colleague. You can also give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Leaders for Good and how you can start making positive change, head on over to leadersforgood.org and join our free community.